let's start with uh, a topic that got overshadowed by Roe versus Wade being overturned, and that is a case that came down from the U.S. Supreme Court involving the issue of separation of church and state. And this decision could have broad ramifications for public education uh, in this country, and we have with us to discuss the issue Professor Richard Garnett, founding director of Notre Dame Law School's program on church, state, and society. He teaches, writes, and lectures about freedom of religion, association, and constitutional law. He's a Yale law grad, and he clerked for the late Chief Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist. Welcome to the show, Professor Garnett. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the facts of this case that gave rise to the opinion that came down this week? Yeah, sure. So Maine has a program uh, that's designed to deal with the fact that in some of their more rural areas, there are school districts that don't have their own high school. Maine, it turns out, is a is a pretty, it's a beautiful, but a pretty empty state. So what they do is uh, for parents who live in some of these districts that don't have a, a high school, uh, Maine provides tuition assistance for parents to choose some other high school. They can go to a neighboring district, but they're also allowed to choose private schools. And in some cases, parents have chosen to go, you know, out of state, out of county, even in some cases out of the country. But Maine had a rule that excluded parents from being able to use this benefit at religious schools. So the question that the Supreme Court had to decide was whether the First Amendment permits Maine to open up a tuition program to private schools, but to exclude religious uh, schools as part, uh, from participating. And the court said no. They were they relied on two other decisions from the last few years where the justices have kind of affirmed and then reaffirmed this principle that um, it's not that states have to fund private education. It's not that states have to fund religious education. But once a state decides to fund private education, it can't discriminate against parents who choose to uh, religious schools for their kids. That was the holding of the case. So, and I'm, before we take a break, uh, Maine, uh, apparently the, the law that they, or the rule that they had in place that said that the parents could not use these this tuition assistance for a religious-based school, I assume they were concerned about the issue of separation of church and state, i.e. using public taxpayer money to fund a religious um, tuition at a religious school. Is that probably fair to say? Yeah, well, Maine wants to pursue a stricter version of church-state separation than the Constitution requires. So the, the First Amendment permits school vouchers, it permits school choice. It, it, it doesn't violate the First Amendment for government funds to be used by parents at religious schools. But Maine's argument was, well, we should be able to adopt a stricter version of church-state separation if we want to. Let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to explore a little bit and maybe explain a little bit about what the First Amendment says when it comes to freedom of religion uh, and when it comes to education. We're uh, talking to Professor Rick Arnett from, uh, at uh, Notre Dame Law School, and you're listening to WGN. Welcome back. We are talking to Professor Rick Garnett about the Supreme Court decision that came down this week uh, regarding separation of church and state, striking down a main law that said that tuition assistance funds uh, could not be used for religious schools. Um, Professor, do you do, was this a surprise to you, or or was this something that you expected? No, I expected it. I mean, in, in recent years, the Supreme Court, uh, in a number of decisions has held that uh, the free exercise 
clause of the First Amendment means, among other things, that governments can't deny benefits to people on the basis of religion. Um, so I actually don't see this main case so much as a separation of church and state case as a free exercise case. Um, it's pretty well established now that it's permissible for governments to cooperate with religious institutions in the healthcare sector or the education sector. This has been happening for for many decades. Um, but what we've been seeing in the past couple of years is the court insisting that the free exercise guarantee means that you, you can't be denied benefits. And these, you know, this tuition assistance is a benefit. You can't be denied benefits simply because you choose a religious option or you want to exercise uh, your religious rights to have a, um, an education in, in, in that setting. Again, these, these schools are, you know, um, they provide a, a quality education and they're, they're fully um, licensed to operate and all that. Um, and no one is suggesting, the court wasn't suggesting, that Maine is obligated to fund religious schools. Um, the point, it's a relatively narrow point, actually. It's that once the government decides to make a benefit available, it can't pull the plug on that benefit just because you choose a religious option. So here's my concern about this, and and, and this is what has been written, and, and maybe you can uh, allay our fears here, but the, the idea of a, a school, uh, for instance, a Catholic school, which might, and, and they're certainly entitled to say that we uh, do not want to hire um, people, uh, uh, LBGY, whatever the letters are, you know, we don't want to hire, hire people who uh, have gender preference uh, differences, or maybe with children who uh, are transgender or whatever. There can be rules like that because the Catholic Church or a Muslim-based or a temple-based church or synagogue could also do that, could could make those rules. But when you're giving government money to a school that would then violate the uh, discrimination laws, how does that work? How, does that mean that these schools now have to comply with all of the uh, state uh, and, and government, uh, federal government laws regarding discrimination? Well, it's a good question, and, and this case doesn't reach that point. So this, this decision doesn't um, say, for example, that Maine couldn't require all schools that receive money to adopt a particular non-discrimination policy. That, that wasn't the question presented, because Maine's policy was to deny participation simply because the schools were religious. Um, it's another question whether Maine could say Okay, here's the deal. Um, you know, any private school, whether or not it's religious, can participate in this program. But here's the condition: you have to have an open admissions policy or something like that. Yeah, now, interesting. So, own, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and 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 guess what? They're probably going to do that, right? Uh, you know, some will, some won't. I mean, I think a lot of people would be of the view that um, uh, the government contracts with all kinds of entities all the time in order to achieve public goods, you know, to build battleships or to, you know, do research and all kinds of things. And not everything that a government contractor does is the government's action. And so my own view is that, um, you know, the government should be willing to let Catholic hospitals participate in Medicaid, even if Catholic hospitals don't perform abortions, say. And similarly, it seems to me that um, the government should be like, look, as long as these kids at a parochial school are getting a good education, we don't, it, it's not our business if they're going to chapel once a week, too. But I think you're right that there's going to be some political interest in 
at least in some states, in saying, okay, well, schools that participate have to observe certain rules with respect to admissions or hiring and so on. As you say, um, religious schools have a, a constitutional right to choose their teachers, to choose their uh, students and so on. But it's a it's a different question, one that the Supreme Court did not address in this case, whether Maine could attach conditions related to those kinds of things. So... Um so let's let's talk, I, actually before I get to uh, the the other case that uh, hasn't come down yet, and we did discuss this last time you were on the show. But I want to just sneak yep. in sneak in a quick question. Now you you were uh, you clerked for Justice William Rehnquist. Um, I did. Uh, and how long was your clerkship? Just one year. Okay. So, you know, just so all the listeners know, when you get a clerkship, it's probably because you went to an excellent law school and you probably ended up at the very, very top of your class. And, uh, and that's so. That's usually how it goes. I just, I bribed my way. Oh, well. Usually that's how it goes. The Chicago way. <laughs> isn't that, <laughs> isn't that wonderful? Uh, no, that's, no, you, you obviously excelled every step of the way to get to that point. The clerks are all extremely bright and talented and hardworking. Um, so in your clerkship, I mean, do you, and you're looking back at your clerkship, and you now see you know, that there was a leak, obviously, that we've been talking about for about six weeks with the Supreme Court decision that was leaked. How could that have happened, knowing what you know about clerking in the Supreme Court, which is a very cool thing to do and very, um, uh, you know, you're trusted, entrusted with quite a bit of important information. Uh, how, how does something like that happen in your view? Can you lend, I'll shed a little more light on it than most people, um, you know, know about? Well, I can try. I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is that the norm that was given to us when we stepped into that position was very much uh, a norm of confidentiality uh, with respect to our boss's work. And so this leak was a, if it came from a clerk, and we don't know, but if it did, was a dramatic and, to my mind, just indefensible breach of um the clerk's ethics and obligations. Um, you know, technology's changed since I clerked. I'm, it's been 25 years, and so it's probably easier these days than it was for things to kind of escape. But um, there's no doubt that any clerk, if it was a clerk who leaked this opinion, um, seriously violated his or her obligations. And it's it's unprecedented, and in my view, in my view it's inexcusable and awful. I, I don't care um, if the clerk was liberal or conservative or pro-choice or pro-life. It doesn't matter. Um, to leak that is, um, it's a it's a breach with your boss. It's a breach with your colleagues. And in my view, it's really a betrayal of the institution. Yeah. And I've heard that uh, it could even be a theft of pro- government property and it could be a crime. And certainly, you know, a person who spent all that money on some really good law school, like, like, you went to Yale and spend, you know, how much that that education cost. Um, you might even still be paying for it. And, and, and you know, easily that clerk, if it was a clerk, could be disbarred. I mean, before they even get their career started. Well, um, I would hope that if if it were discovered who leaked it, that the legal profession across the board, again, liberal, conservative, big law, small firms, government, would agree that this person has no business practicing law. It's, I mean, it's that significant, and, and I agree with you. And it, it just seems like not a smart thing to have done for a smart person if that person were a clerk. Let's go back to uh, Supreme Court decisions. And this one is probably going to come 
come down this week because I think there's just one week left for the court to issue its rulings. Yeah. So, and this was the case. Let's talk a little bit about the facts. So, yeah, this is the football coach who prayed after a high school football game. That was his practice. He didn't organize the students, but instead he went out in the field and he prayed after the game. Um, and the, he was fired for that. And the question is, uh, was he? Did he have a right to exercise his uh, religious beliefs on the football field with? without right. organizing the students. And and what are you thinking about this? What do you think the, the, the court's going to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it occurred to me, I probably should just make sure your listeners know that I, I participated, I, I wrote a brief in both the main case and the one we're talking about now, so, oh. just so they, they know that, that I have a, I, I did take positions in these cases. Um, with respect to this coach, uh, the issue was, you know, he was disciplined for engaging in these publicly visible public prayers, um, uh, after these high school football games, and he claimed that these, this discipline, effectively he was punished for his expression, and that violates the First Amendment. And the school district's response was to say, well, we we had to limit this activity because if we didn't, we would be violating the Establishment Clause. We would be violating, uh, to, to go back to your earlier point, the separation of church and state. So the court, in a sense, has a, a two-level inquiry here. First, they have to say, well, does the coach have a free speech right to engage in, in public prayer? And I, th- I think the answer there is, yes, we all do. We all have a right to pray in public if we want to. Um, and then the question is, well, was the district correct that it was obligated to make the coach stop in order to um, respect the no establishment clause? I think the court is going to say no, that the district overreacted, that um, the First Amendment does not require a school district to prevent a coach, even though the coach is a public employee, um, from from engaging in personal prayer uh, after a game. And, you know, the thing about this case is it, it involves a school, and it, it brings us back to some of these cases from 60 years ago about prayer in public schools and so on. But in, in my view, anyway, this isn't a school prayer case. It's not a case that's challenging those old rules about prayer in public schools. It's really a case about whether public employees somehow lose their free speech rights um, when they're visible to the public. Uh, so, yeah, that's yeah, it. and and you know, and and my only, and I'm just going to probably get the last word in here because it's my show. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, my only concern is that the, that the students maybe somehow felt or could possibly mm-hmm. feel compelled to be part of it because in a team, you know, and you maybe you right. want to start and you want to please your 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 coach, and that 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 was some idea that that's the concern. That's yeah. the concern. That's and that's always going to be the concern. But that decision will come out this week, and uh, I really appreciate you joining us, Professor Rick. Garnett from uh, Notre Dame Law School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.